0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York City's neighborhoods. Most weeks, like this one, the show focuses on a particular neighborhood, exploring its history, its vibe, its DNA, and its energy. What makes the neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Occasionally, I'll host a show about an interesting part of the city that's not about one particular neighborhood, maybe about one of our fine urban parks or an extraordinary museum, the transit system, the city in an age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre. I'm dying to do a show about punk. We're going to do that sometime in the future or a unique New York architectural phenomenon, like Rockefeller Center. Each episode will be informative, entertaining, illuminating, and of course, fun. And each show will be available on archive and podcasts the day after the show airs. Well, this is episode eight, and it's our first episode in Queens, and we're going to be focusing today on Long Island City. And with the news recently on Amazon deciding not to uh, base a headquarters here in New York, Uh, The neighborhood has been in the spotlight, and we're going to explore Long Island City tonight. My first guest is Bob Singleton. Bob is a Long Island City, New York historian with deep community activist roots. Bob went to NYU's Stern School of Business and in his career held important positions on Wall Street and in corporate finance. As a board member and executive director of the Greater Astoria Historical Society, He's contributed to its significant growth and is often cited in articles and books. Bob is currently spearheading a project to establish a library and research facility related to Long Island City's rich history, and boy, is this history rich. Uh, A few interesting things about Bob's ancestry. Uh, His direct ancestor, Edward Hart, was the town clerk of Flushing. He wrote the Flushing Remonstrance, which was the blueprint for religious liberty in America. That was from 1657, everybody. Uh, Another ancestor, John Hart, signed the Declaration of Independence as one of the delegates from the colony, then became the state of New Jersey. Their influence on American history has led him to believe that a community only survives when it has multi-generational sense of pride in its heritage. Bob, welcome to Rediscovering New York.
1: Hello, Jeff. Glad
0: to be here. Um, We have a technical issue. Just a second. Ah, okay. Here we are. Bob, are you there? I'm here. Oh, great. Oh, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, One of those glitches, everyone. Welcome to Rediscovery New York, Bob. Oh, and thanks for inviting us. Now, you're not from a New York originally, are you?
1: Actually, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, I came to New York after school. Everybody that uh, likes to have a career in finance, dreams of Wall Street. Uh, uh, very interesting background. I was at NYU. I lived at 1 Fifth Avenue. When I worked in Wall Street, I worked at 1 Wall Street. So it was a, grad- a fabulous time. Um, but I discovered that my real love was New York City itself. Um, actually what had happened is I bought a Dover book on cast iron architecture, went out to lunch one day at, uh, when I worked on Wall Street to look at buildings, and um, even though I came back about two and a half hours later, I really never came back, and that really became my career. The buildings, the community, the people of New York City.
0: Wow, so was it finance that first brought you to the city, and uh, how old were you when you first? Well, at that
1: point, I was in my early twenties. You sort of dreamed of, uh, you know, a career on Wall Street. Uh, I think anybody that gets, you know, goes into business into finance, MBA, realizes that that's really the heart of, uh, you know, the American, and international. Uh, the other thing, too, was that there was a big time where things were getting international, and so Wall Street was the place to be. I Actually, got a job with the Industrial Bank of Japan, which was uh, um, the, the bank that did sort of wholesale banking around the world, so it was really fascinating to be able to uh, see how um, oil tanker deals were put together and, and steel mills and places like Dubai and, and what have you. It was a fascinating time. Um, I was very privileged. I had a very good group of people to work with, Um, But after a couple of years of that, as I said, the allure of New York City just got to be so overwhelming that um, I decided to follow (coughs) my heart, pun not intended, (laughs) my family, Um, and I (coughs) became involved in uh, the city itself. Um, and I started to um, put together a, a sort of a business uh, away from Wall Street, working with people that were in the arts. Uh, at, and back in the '80s, it was a fascinating period of time. Um, some new communities were being developed, in places like Soho, the Meatpacking District, and parts of Brooklyn. Um, Most of the people that I had as clients at that time were um, people in creative uh, artists or writers or people that ran uh, shops, uh, did interesting artists and things. It was a fascinating uh, change. I'm glad I did it. Um, And it was an absolutely um, uh, really interesting uh, addition to my, my job experience. The business, I think, is a fabulous opportunity for somebody to be able to see opportunities, uh, be able to take a look at things, put things together, and, and invent new things. And it was great to be able to work with these people, um, and it was great for myself, too. And, and that was a transition into my current uh, interest, which is uh, the city of New York itself, its community, its, its neighborhoods, uh, how neighborhoods transform, um, and how we can help build new communities and build New York's future.
0: Hmm. How did you become to How did you become associated with the Greater Astoria historic, Historical Society? There was
1: an informal group of us. Uh, we would get together uh, from time to time, walk through different neighborhoods, and 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 share pictures or share discussions. And I had a friend of mine who lived in Astoria at the time. And uh, she had said that uh, they had a historical society. I came to a few of their lectures. There was, at that time, it was a gentleman named Vincent Seyfried, uh, who was uh, considered to, to this day to be the dean of the Queens County Historians, as they call him. man was a fabulous person. He was a teacher, uh, educator. He uh, dedicated his life to uh, his passion, which was communities and discovering interesting things. Um, I had noticed uh, for uh, a, a year or so that the organization had stopped meeting, And I went to um, the person that was hosting the organization, and he said that, uh, you know, it's sort of in a state of of sort of abeyance right now. And, And he said, would you be interested in helping revive it? And I jumped at the chance because, you know, at that time I realized that, you know, Long Island City was New York's third city. And unlike Brooklyn or Manhattan or New York City... This was a, an area that had a great deal of potential, a great deal of undiscovered information, and had the kind of history that could go toe-to-toe with any other part of New York City. And uh, since then, it's just been a fabulous uh, uh, fabulous! Some like twenty years in, in terms of being involved with this these kind of topics. Been a oh, lot of fun.
0: Oh, great! Great. Our uh, listeners, uh, even though it's called the Greater Historia Historical Society, the society also focuses on the history of Long Island City. Uh, when you first became associated with the society, Bob, did it also f- focus on Long Island City, or is that something that you added in your? In well, your no. Efforts? It was well,
1: the, the Greater. It's interesting because in in that area. Um, the, the post office for example is Long Island City and and basically Long Island City is everything between 51st Street and the East River from Newtown Creek all the way up to Steinway Creek so um, and, and of course the, the, the uh, uh, political offices kind of uh, go into different uh, different communities so it's, it's basically uh, Blissville Sunnyside um, uh, Hunters Point uh, Astoria, Old Astoria, Steinway um, The Ravenswood and Dutch Kills uh, were the different neighborhoods that comprised old Long Island City. Um, When we wrote books, we talked about Astoria as being the village, the largest community, but um, it was part and parcel of a broader picture. Not unlike, say, downtown Brooklyn was part and parcel of the broader Brooklyn, or Greenwich Village was part and parcel of, say, New York City or Manhattan.
0: Mm. Does the history of Long Island City go back as far as when the Dutch were here, and this was part of New, Nether- New Netherland? Well, actually, the history goes back to the time when uh, the, the, the glaciers
1: were here, even before then. Uh, well, I meant the history yeah, of uh, yeah, European yeah. settlement. Well, uh, well uh, you know, it's interesting because Long Island City is an overlay of different, different layers. And you'll notice very tall buildings, for example, being built in Long Island City. That's because Long Island City underlaying it is the same kind of um, rock, hard rock, that underlays Manhattan. Uh, and that's the only place in Long Island that you get that kind of uh, that kind of rock the rest of Long Island is an alluvial plain from the glaciers. Now the Dutch, of course, arrived, and what they did was to basically uh, overlay the native people's um, world. Uh, they had different camps. They had different paths that they would follow. And those camps were the um, w- the heart of, say, what is today the old Astoria or Long Island City. Uh, the roads that they walked in still exist to this day. Um, so, when the Dutch arrived, um, the the world that they that they they basically fit very nicely into the, the Native American um, print that footprint that had already been there.
0: Well, I know that uh, present day Roosevelt Island actually uh, did have uh, Dutch farmers on it. It was called Hogs Island, and that was before the uh, the British took over New York in in 1664. Um, Were were the native peoples living in what's now Long Island City? Uh, Yes. Because when you talk about an an alluvial plain in other parts of Queens, that has rich soil and that you can actually use it for farmland. Did the same kind of uh, land exist in Long Island City? Yes,
1: yes, yes it did. As a matter of fact, uh, again, going back in its its history, Long Island City is sort of a microclimate. It's almost a subtropical climate. You're surrounded by water. uh, The soil is very, very rich. Um, and it was a fabulous place to grow things. It's, it, the waters was fabulous. Uh, you, was, you dip a net in the waters and come out full of fish. Uh, it was just a, a very, very productive area. As a matter of fact, when the Dutch, um, when the people retired from the Dutch East Indies Company, uh, instead of going back to Holland, uh, the Dutch uh, gave them land. They didn't really have money to pay them a retirement, but they gave them land. And that's where you actually have a community that started it, to this day. It's called Dutch Kills. Uh, and it's received its name because there was a number of Dutch settlements on both sides of it um, that were farms, breweries that they called. And we also have Old Bowery Bay Road. The Bowery was a, um, the uh, poor farm, It's was called Poor Bowery. They were, Again, they had no cash in those days, but they had land. So they grew produce on this on this, this, this farm, which was used to support the uh, widows and orphans of New Amsterdam. So yes, it was very much connected uh, with New Amsterdam. Mm.
0: Well, we're going to take a break in a minute, but I did want to ask you another question. Um, Something about New York is that a good part of the city uh, is infused with history about the Revolutionary War. Did anything of note happen in present-day Long Island City during during the war when the British were sort of sweeping the colonists out of Long Island?
1: Long Island City was sort of the back. Most of the action occurred in Manhattan, occurred in Brooklyn, Um, but you know the 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 British did occupy uh, Long Island City. They 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 did march their troops. uh, along what is today Newtown Road, which was a colonial road, to Halletts Point, and it was an artillery duel back and forth with that and and the area that's uh, where the mayor currently lives at uh, Gracie Mansion, which was Gracie Point. But there's a very interesting story um, about uh, the uh, the Blackwell Colonel Blackwell. Um, um, do we have a couple of minutes uh, to, to, to? Yeah, we have it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. sure. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Colonel Blackwell uh, was uh, the head of a local militia. He was involved uh, with the colonial cause. He actually attended a convention. And a story was told, and I heard this from a direct descendant, that after the Battle of Long Island, when the British fanned out uh, through Queens, through Long Island City, through Astoria, uh, they started interviewing certain key people in the communities to see which side they stood uh, on the issue uh, of, of independence versus the British. And uh, they uh, they stopped by Colonel Blackwell's house, and the story was told that the the uh, major, the British major, who's uh, named, uh, had a conversation saying, "Oh, you have a beautiful farm here. I see the cattle are very fat. You know, uh, your your granaries it's just harvested. Your barns look very well." And and Colonel Blackwell was sort of sitting there. Jacob Blackwell was like, "Yes, you know, trying to be polite, uh, you know, in his dining room with the you know sipping um, some some liqueur with with the British." and, and then finally the British turned to him and said, well, that's the point of the pattern of being here is we'd like to know if you're a loyalist or if you are one of those damned rebels. And the colonel looked at him straight in the eye and he says, sir, he says, I must be truthful. He says, I, I am with, with my people. And, and the British officer said, basically, well, Jay, that's unfortunate because that cattle will be used to feed our troops. The grain will be used to make them bread and uh, your home will be used for British officers, but don't worry, your wife and six kids will make sure they have one room, one fireplace, and the king's rations. And as for you, good sir, being a a gentleman, um, you can leave this evening, because when we come back tomorrow, you'll be put into a prison ship, and you will not last long. The colonel left that evening uh, heartbroken. Um, The British did exactly what they said they would do, and he later came back um, to the house um, he asked for a pardon, and he, and he died there. But the important thing about this is that when the British left the house, the officer turned to his adjutant, adjud- and he said, put an arrow of confiscation in that door. That door has something that we've sort of forgotten. It was called the broad arrow, where they would carve uh, an arrow and say, they used to do this for a tree, for example, that they wanted uh, <coughs> for His Majesty's ships. And once that tree has an arrow on it, you can't touch it. That house meant it belonged to the king by having that arrow on it. That door survived. Our historical society has that door. Wow. Okay. Uh, And, And it's really great because when young people come in and we talk about American history, we talk about the price that people paid for the freedoms that we own. And you can see these young people, you can see their eyes sort of light up, really connecting with American history by seeing something like that.
0: Well, we have such great history in New York. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Bob Singleton of the Greater Historia Historical Society, which also includes Long Island City. We'll be back.
2: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network. 24 hours a day.
0: We're back. You're back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me. I'm Jeff Goodman. And uh, our first guest today uh, on the show on Long Island City is Bob Singleton of the Greater Astoria Historical Society. Uh, by the way, the, uh, all these great things that Bob is talking about in terms of artifacts, the society is in the process of moving to its new headquarters. Bob, when when do you expect the society to actually be reopened for visitors?
1: Oh, my heavens. That's, that's a good question. Um, you know, Long Island City is a very dynamic kind of environment. Uh, we're meeting new people. Uh, we actually... Uh, uh, started our process of moving at the beginning of the year so it's only month number two and these things do take a, a, a bit of a while to do but I would say with it, hopefully within another year or two uh, we should start to uh, Well, certainly within a few months we're gonna start our programming back again um but in terms of the uh, space um you know we're in discussion right now with a number of different locations um and uh thank you for asking and uh we know a lot
0: of other people have the same questions and it's gonna be as soon as possible well, if people want to get in touch with you about the society, um, how can they contact you with a, a website, an email address? Uh.
1: Our, our website is Astoria LIC. As you can see, we take, again, the Astoria and Long Island City uh, concepts together. So it's AstoriaLIC.org, www.AstoriaLIC.org. And our phone number is 718-278-0700. And our uh, email is
0: L I C at... Gmail.com. Great, thank you. Uh, what's the origin of the name Long Island City, and was it incorporated as its own city before uh, it was part of the Borough of Queens?
1: Yeah, yes, it was. Long Island City um, got its start uh, as a uh, an idea, uh, really a really a development project. The Hunter family uh, left their farm uh, to uh, was actually was sold to Union College. And the trustees of Union College decided to uh, develop the area. Uh, the, that was the beginning of um, the, the, the age of railroads. That was the beginning of the age of steamships. That was the beginning of, of really the modern era. You're looking at about 1850, 1860, 1870. So the area that was formerly called Hunter's Point, the Hunter Farm, uh, was the heart of uh, Long Island City. Um, the name was coined because they felt that this would be a, a, a place that had a fabulous potential. Uh, Long Island City was developed uh, also because the people that lived there didn't have the opportunity to um, get municipal services, uh, That is, the schools, the streets, and what have you. At that time, they didn't have the kind of taxation we had. The only thing you could tax was property. So they went to Albany and got a charter to incorporate the surrounding areas, including the village of Astoria, Ravenswood, uh, and other areas uh, into what is Long Island City, this community lasted for um, 30 years until 1898, the consolidation into broader New York. So when we talk about New York City, and New York City is comprised of, I understand, something like 40 different villages and cities and what have you, three cities, New York City, the city of Brooklyn, and Long Island City. As a matter of fact, we, we call Long Island City New York's other city. Oh,
0: <laughs> that's right, because the first uh, settlement was uh, uh, lower Manhattan, New Amsterdam, and then Brooklyn, which was actually named after the Dutch town Brooklyn, uh, When I was in high school, I went to Midwood High School. Oh. Uh, uh, we uh, uh, started uh, writing with uh, high school students from uh, the high school in Broekelen, uh, Nederland, in the Netherlands. And then Long Island City was the city's, uh, was Greater New York City's third city. The Long Island Railroad Terminal opened in 1861. Did that substantially change how the area developed? Oh, yes, it did. Um, Actually, the the Long
1: Island City seemed to, one of the things we, as historians we do is we we take a look at a community, we take a look at an area, and we try to find patterns to make something stand out, an area that stand out. The Long Island Railroad is just one step of a series of patterns, of of repeat patterns, of um, what makes Long Island City special. And what we find is that it was a place of very creative, imaginative people. It goes back to the time of the, the again, the Dutch, the British, with the tide mills. You know, New York's, the, the area, the New York region, um, really was not working out. It was losing money. Um, there was a lot of strife. And finally, what happened was that the governor or, or the, of, of New York and local business interests got together, came up with something called the Bolting Act where they said, you know, let's have New York have a monopoly on on the milling of wheat. Let's have New York have a monopoly on building ships so we can transport this wheat to England. From that moment, the area took off to where where it is today. The tide mills are really the beginning. Um, If you take a look at the flag of New York City, you'll see two flour barrels on that flag. Harkening back to the moment that New York City got launched into greatness going forward um, The Erie Canal was first conceived by DeWitt Clinton who lived on Newtown Creek The Erie Canal opened up the Inland Empire to the Empire City and the Empire State the And that's Empire. when we
0: became known as the Empire State exactly. was after the opening was because of the Erie,
1: because, because the Erie Canal And that's how like, you know, like Long Island City had sugar mills you know, refining sugar, and they didn't go down by steamboat to New Orleans. (laughs) You know, they just absorbed all these new ideas, and and the railroads, the the Long Island Railroad in in 1861 was simply another step of this process. You know, at that time, railroads was like the the tech of today. You know, the railroads was, the, the engineering of railroads was extraordinary. Um, the 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 piggyback service that was developed on the Long Island Railroad, where they would take the freight, the, um, they would load the, the flatbeds full of uh, wagons full of potatoes, uh, was the harbinger of what is mostly of the twenty first century railroad freight, which is the piggyback service of tractor trailers that was started by the railroad. The Long Island Railroad was a, considered to be an innovative line. It was a very small line compared to some of the great continental railroads, but in terms of innovation, uh, when you talk to railroad people, I mean it's it's legendary. And, and that's sort of, that's, that system has repeated itself um, through uh, you know, the, the early years of the 20th century, where the Long Island Railroad was acquired by the Pennsylvania Railroad. No, folks, the Pennsylvania Railroad was larger than as the, the government. The American government it had more money. It employed a quarter of a million people. The country had a third of the population. And they put in Sunnyside Yards sunnyside yards it doesn't exist anywhere else it was an intermodal transportation system around the edges of it they put in cast iron or the 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 loft buildings um which were just phenomenal you know to own these things because they they were uh, they had great ventilation great places to work in they were fireproof they were connected through the railroad to the rest of the country through the um the newtown creek To the rest of the world, water transportation. So, what we have here is a series of events. You know, how often does lightning strike the same location? Um, And I don't think it's an accident, I think it's location. You know, the really great thing about location is uh, they say that creativity and location are the parents of innovation. And if you take a look at Long Island City, it's right across the river from Midtown Manhattan. And talk about a fortuitous place to live and to work. I can't think of a better place.
0: And, of course, there was a ferry service uh, until uh, the uh, marvel of not, not just Pennsylvania Station, but it was an engineering marvel at the time, to build those uh, uh, two tunnels with four tracks that was three miles long. Uh, from Long Island to uh, into Penn Station, did the neighborhood uh, decline at all once that uh, that terminal really scaled back its operations with the opening of Penn Station? Well,
1: it it changed. You know, it's interesting. I, I read uh, an account. We we have the the more or the the old newspapers, the Long Island Star Journal, and what have you, and and it it, it was fascinating um area that you can find out about local history it's not perfect but if you one thing to look at it's it's historic newspapers and i read a story of the last ferry you know i had two horses two two teams of horses and six older guys it was basically on a you know a a tour of what their what what their youth was like but you know things evolve things change all the time and the fact is that long island city was right in the heart of the um the, the New York City is a clearinghouse of ideas and of places and of things. Uh, somebody took a, a, a plane uh, back in the 50s and took a picture of Long Island City in its, in, when it was a manufacturing peak. And I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I'm pretty familiar with things like steel mills and big you know, manufacturing plants and what have you. Um, but I have never seen anything that resembled anything like Long Island City in terms of how well it was connected with transportation, uh, well, how well it was connected with, with uh, population. You know, not only did you have um, industry put into Long Island City, but you had fabulous housing for the workers. You had model housing, uh, you had uh, planned communities around, you had Sunnyside Yards, or, I mean, the Sunnyside Gardens, you had Matthew Motto Flats, you had Jackson Heights. Some of the best housing built in this country in the 20th century was built for people that worked at mm-hmm. or, or near. Long Island City in the, in the, in the um, industrial areas.
0: Well, we're coming up on a break in another minute, but I did I want to ask you one other question. Sure. Um, how the openings of the 59th Street Bridge and the tunnel changed the neighborhood? Did the neighborhood change after the opening of those two?
1: Well, yes, because, you, you, again, you did go from ferry into more modern transportation. You went through direct rail transportation. You went through, um, you know, you were connected with the highway system. Um, so it, it just, it's basically, it basically, the, the area just evolved as transportation evolved to, to new, uh, to new opportunities. Oh, okay.
0: And one thing too, I have to say, when I, uh, when I was selling uh, a certain kind of, uh, service back in the early eighties, I called on a lot of manufacturing, uh, plants in Long Island city. I would drive up the, the BQE and there were still lots of manufacturing places, but those, uh, uh pretty much have gone by the wayside. Uh, Bob Singleton from the Greater, Historic, Greater Historia Historical <laughs> Society. Okay, tongue tied here. Yeah, it uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so oh, much yeah. for joining yeah. us. Yeah. And uh, we will be back with our second guest after the break, and we will be focusing more on the present of Long Island City. Be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, twenty four hours a day.
0: We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his team can be reached at 212 495 0317. Well, one thing our show is not, uh, even though we are going to touch on a little real estate in the second half of this, this show, is we are not a business show about real estate. But there is a good one, Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. It's on Tuesday mornings, live at 9 a.m., and you can hear it at voiceamerica.com, and it's also available on podcast. You can like us on Facebook, uh, it's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, that's me, Jeff Goodman. And also follow me on Instagram at jeff Goodman, NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Well, we're pleased to welcome our second guest, Robert Whelan, who happens to be a colleague of mine. He is Halstead's Director of Sales for our Long Island City office. And Robert's portfolio includes, the comp- includes planning and strategic growth for the company in the entire borough, not just Long Island City. Like many of us in our crazy business, Robert didn't start out his career in real estate. His earlier career was in journalism. He led news bureaus in Atlanta and New York before assuming the post of executive editor responsible for daily operations of a national business daily. While Robert was a journalist, he worked his way through law school at New York Law, graduating and passing the bar in 2006. In early 2007, Robert was recruited by the New York State Comptroller, Tom DiNapoli to serve as his press secretary in the city, and to assist with various policies and initiatives. In 2010, Robert was assigned to work directly under the chief investment officer of the New York State Common Retirement Fund, where he helped manage investment operations, negotiated contracts, and also managed key relationships. But with an enduring love for all things New York, Robert inevitably found himself drawn to the inescapable excitement of New York City's real estate market, like me and so many other people, and I can certainly relate to that. Robert lives in New York and actually lives in Long Island City, and we welcome Robert Whalen to Rediscovering New York. Welcome, Robert.
4: Ah, Thank you for having me. Good to be here.
0: Where are you from originally?
4: Are you Uh, a native New Yorker? I am. I am. I was born in uh, Jamaica, Queens. Ah, Uh, Queens boy all around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I grew up uh, uh, just outside of Queens. I grew up in Elmont, which is where the Belmont racetrack is. Uh, My family was in the horse racing business, and so that was a very convenient place for them to be.
0: Mm. Um, What positions did you have in your career as a journalist? Uh,
4: Well, I I started out as a a copy editor. I worked for a a publication called The Bond Buyer, uh, which covers the municipal bond market. It's a a national paper. I started as a copy editor. I went to, um, quickly became a a reporter uh, covering technology. Uh, Then I I started managing that section. Then I moved down to Atlanta to run the the Atlanta Bureau, which had coverage of the uh, Eleven states in the southeast. I, uh, over the course of of uh, of getting to know some people down there, I, I decided I really would would prefer to be on the on the business side of the municipal bond market. I was really attracted to the idea of doing deals. And so as things go, the the bankers I talked to said, "Well, go get your uh, MBA." And the lawyers I talked to said, "Well, get get a JD." And I sort of always had thought about law, so. Uh, so I took the LSAT, and then on advice, they said, well, where do you plan to live? And I said, I'm going to be back in New York. They said, go back to New York and go to school there. Uh, so then I went to work for uh, for Bloomberg uh, Bloomberg News, and after a couple of years there, I, uh, I, I started law school in 2002.
0: When you were reporting on the bond market, was Jim Labenthal still around? That's a name yes. from my... <laughs> yes, 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 uh, yes, yes, uh, yes.
4: Uh, fantastic family, and, and, and uh, really... Um, Innovative, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that he used radio uh, to. Uh, so it's kind of interesting, right?
0: Well, that's how I uh, remember him from uh, the WINS days. You yeah, know, just you know, I'm Jim Labenthal of Labenthal, and he would come up with a very creative. Yeah, it,
4: it was it was kind of really exciting the first time I met him. I was like, "You're you're that guy." You,
0: uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> how did you wind up working for the state controller? What was it that that took you from from the law? I mean, you went from journalism to a law to law school and a law degree. And then you find yourself working for uh, the controller of the state.
4: Yeah, well, it was really interesting. I, I was having lunch with a source of mine, uh, Archie Nelly, and uh, Art n- had known uh, Tom DiNapoli, uh the controller, from his childhood. They were family friends, and um, and he had been in Albany, and uh, the controller had just been sworn in and was putting together his team, and Art was up making a budget proposal because he was working at Nassau County Medical Center. Um, and Tom said, yeah, I really need somebody to help, you know, with my press office. And we, Art and I, just had lunch. And he said, Well, yeah, I know this guy, he just graduated from law school, but he's been in journalism, uh, doing public finance. He's a financial journalist. He might be somebody that you, you know, that maybe he'd be, be helpful. Um, they passed along numbers. I got in touch with the controller and um, met him and, and was interviewed and, and was hired. It was really a fantastic, uh, fantastic time. And, uh, really wonderful to work for uh, for Controller DiNapoli. He's a fantastic Ooh. guy.
0: Well, as a per- on a personal note, I happen to know Tom not well. I'm involved in, in, in local politics. And it was uh, also a real pleasure to find out that that Robert and I, although we're colleagues, we also have a, a past uh, colleague of his in common. Pat Darty who works for the Controller's Office, is, uh, is a long-term friend of mine. And... Um, so, what did you end up doing for the controller and,
4: uh, well I, I started out as his uh, as press secretary in the city uh, most of most of what I handled was uh, New York City uh, financial stuff and the pension fund at the time um, we were under investigation uh, in in two thousand and seven two thousand and eight it seemed to go on for forever really uh, that was a, a very aggressive attorney general uh, who's now the governor um, so that was pretty hot um is that the, as a
0: result of of the Hevesy uh, stuff, or
4: yeah, part of it. Yeah, part of it had, had outgrown, and, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of concerns. But uh, you know, the controller uh, DiNapoli, had put in a lot of uh, a lot of good reforms to uh, improve transparency and safeguard against the idea of of people coming in and using the uh, using the pension fund as sort of a as a tool to sort of you know line their pockets. Um, and so that that was a really uh, it was a really interesting time, and of course you know uh, tom was unfairly criticized uh, because uh Eliot spitzer uh wanted to appoint his own his own person to be the the controller and the legislature uh you know that was their that was their choice so they had they had selected tom and i think in, in their wisdom because he's been you know in my view he's been a, a fantastic uh, uh controller uh, and he's a very and you you know him you know he's a very honest guy you couldn't you couldn't ask for a better person to be sort of safeguarding the uh the, the purse strings of the state um, so so yeah that's that's sort of how I got there and what I was doing and then after he was elected the first actual statewide election uh, in 2010 um, I went to work for the pension fund I worked under Rodland etienne um, and we did a lot of uh, a lot of fun things
0: mm. So, how did you get involved in the crazy world of real estate, Robert? What, yeah. what, what took <laughs> yeah. you from uh, I don't know uh, 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 helping the uh, uh, the trustee yeah. of the city's yeah. pension yeah. funds to to getting involved in real estate?
4: Right. So, um, so my my wife is one of the top uh, agents in Long Island City, uh, Johanna Stark. And um, back when she started her business, I guess she was about two years into it. Uh, our second child uh, was born in 2012, and so her business took a little bit of a dip in 2013. And so when 2014 came along, uh, we decided, uh, you know, I had, I had had my time at the state and it was time to just sort of get back into the private sector. And, uh, and we thought, you know, let's work together and, and just really build the business back up. Um, and so we did that for, for a couple of years. And then I had a wonderful opportunity. We were actually recruited to um, to be agents at Halstead. They were opening an office. And you uh, just the way things happen, I guess my resume came across the right desk and someone said, well, this guy's done a lot of interesting things. He's, he's, he's run offices, he's managed projects, he's done a lot. Uh, maybe we should consider him for that job. And so in, in August of uh, 2015, um, I, 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 went to, uh, went to Halstead as, as a director and, and we started out with a couple of agents. So there's three of us and now we have about 22 and, uh, and it's, it's been really the timing couldn't have been any better. Um it's it's been you know, the growth in Long Island City is been uh uh since two thousand six really. Uh it's been nonstop and it's it's ongoing and it's it's really exciting to see a, a neighborhood being transformed and it was very interesting listening to, to Bob talk about the you know sort of the origins or had there have always been innovation and, and creator and, and artistic people uh, you know and it's just it it continues today which is i think very exciting and what was appealing to me uh was really the convenience uh, of the neighborhood i was working in the controller's office and it was uh you know r- right across the street it was on third avenue by uh, grand central and so it was one stop into long island city i looked across the river one day i was out walking and uh i saw these these buildings going up i said i should really check that place out and so, um, so I signed a lease before the before the apartment was even finished, and uh, and then when it was finished, I moved in into Long Island City in November two
0: thousand seven. Oh, so you, uh, Robert, just doesn't work in Long Island City. He he lives in Long Island City. So you actually lived there a good eight years before you started with the Halsted Long Island office, Long Island City office. Uh, yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. that's about right. That's about right.
0: What do you like about the neighborhood? What is it that that aside from being proximitous to uh, you know to Manhattan, well, what is it, was there something else that that drew you to Long Island City? Was was well, something about the vibe? Yeah, of the yeah.
4: I mean, the vibe. It's it's a neighborhood. You know, you you really get to know you get to know your neighbors. It's there's a lot more people there now than when I first got there. But we would joke about um, you couldn't go out and run an errand and say I'll be back in ten minutes because you'd run into three people and I, so like 45 minutes later you know john is like where 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 were you and i said well i saw so and so and then i ran into you know you know people that we, and it was just and you couldn't go out to dinner without you know sitting next to someone that you you know that you knew so um it's a little different now, but it's still—it's retained its its kind of intimacy. It's retained that familiarity, and there's a lot of like-minded individuals. We, you know, we we like being in the city, but we also like to. There's something that happens when you when you step out of the subway. You know, you just take a you take a deep breath and exhale, and and it's palpable. You know, and I, I mean, I've always felt it, um, and and now I, I was kind of surprised, but I I couldn't think of a better place to be raising my kids. We've got the parks. And um, and now we've got plenty of shopping, but the, the parks are really fantastic. And for, for my son, for example, um, you know, to be able to look out at the waterfront and see, you know, the helicopters, there's trains in the neighborhood, there's ferries and boats and there's so much activity. It's just always kept his imagination stimulated and my daughter as well. Mm. And also
0: I'd like to say that uh, even though the tunnels uh, were built uh, more than 100 years ago to Penn Station, uh, the Hunters Point Avenue uh, uh, station of the Long Island Railroad is actually still there. That's right. Uh, have you always lived in the same place in Long Island City, or have you moved around at all?
4: I've had a, I've had a couple of uh, I've lived in a couple of different apartments, mm. and uh, but but pretty much uh, we moved across the street, you know. And so when like, <laughs> I I look out my window now, and I'm uh, that's the apartment that I used to live in. I mean, it's it's, oh. it's pretty funny.
0: How have you seen the neighborhood change since you moved in? I mean, aside from the uh, the, the big construction along uh, along the streets adjacent to the river, what?
4: Well, you know gradually one of the things that that was a that was a, a need then was was more retail, and that's gradually uh, and slowly and surely is is increasing so there's there's more there are more restaurants and there are more shops and there are more people and uh, and I think that's all it's all been very good so um yeah
0: hmm. you know, Long Island City always struck me as an interesting place uh, i i uh, I know several people who grew up there in some of the old old houses. And I have a couple of friends who lived in the apartment buildings that were built probably before the Second World War, mm. and now there's all this new construction.
4: Uh, yeah, yeah, you have a, you have a, a nice mix of different um, housing stock. You've got some of the. Um, You've you got uh, one and two families. Um, you've got some multifamily, like you were talking about. Uh, and then you've got the new condos. There's a up there. And uh, interesting, there's uh, right across from the park on 49th Avenue, there's a row of, of single-family houses, and a couple of them are zoned as two, but they were built by the Long Island Railroad, um, I believe, and, and it was for employee housing. And of course, those are now worth, you know, 1. 1.6, 1. 1.7,
0: like so much in, in places that people want to live in.
4: Yeah. Um, we're going to take a short
0: break, and we'll be back with Robert Whalen in just a moment. Stay tuned.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
3: The best designs for your life start...
0: Talking We're back. You are listening to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me. I'm Jeff Goodman. And we're here with Robert Whalen, the director of sales of Halstead's Long Island City office. Uh, Robert, do you find that most of your buying and renting clients in in the office already live in the neighborhood, or do they come from places, other places, and they want to move into Long Island City?
4: Well, that's, that's a good question, and it's changed over time uh, initially. Uh, And I'm saying, you know, maybe 12 years ago, a lot of people were coming from from Manhattan or other, you know, other parts. Some people were coming directly from out of the out of the state. Uh, As people have lived in the neighborhood, we're increasingly seeing people who have maybe been renting on the waterfront and some of those really nice uh, waterfront rentals they're now buying they've got the, they've got their cash together and they're committed and setting their roots down into Long Island City so so you know increasingly we're finding more and more people that are that are buying had been renting and living in the neighborhood but we still get a fair amount of of uh, of people from from all parts of the of the city you know and and really from around the world you know we do have we have a lot of you know Queens is the most diverse place on the planet and people are attracted to that and so we continue to see a lot of interest from from uh, places in Asia and Southeast Asia.
0: Queens is also the largest borough in the city. it's something like 90 square miles and uh, I remember uh, someone telling me that there are more than a hundred languages spoken in the borough now.
4: But yeah, I believe it I believe it.
0: Why do people tell you they want to move to Long Island City? what is it that especially people who want to buy what is it that they that, that it that attracts them to to the neighborhood.
4: You know, probably the number one thing. I mean, they just and it's a it's kind of a, a big open phrase, but quality of life. They they want to they want to be able to. Well, one thing is, you have the best view of of Manhattan that you don't you can't see Manhattan when you're in Manhattan like the way that we see it from across the river. That's one thing, but I think that mostly it's that convenience. So, so many uh, employers are now in Midtown, and whether you're in Court Square, where you would come in, say, on you know 59th Street, uh, on on the N or, or the uh, the W, or whether you're closer to the Seven Train, you go right into Grand Central. That convenience, that's just to Manhattan. You've got the G that takes you down into uh, into Greenpoint and, and Brooklyn, uh, beyond. And uh, and then you've got uh, you've got the airports that are very close by. And also the Long Island Railroad. uh, I'm sorry, Long Island Expressway is right there. So uh, and the bridges. So if you want to get out of the city or just out of the neighborhood, you can you can get out of there pretty good. So the convenience is a pretty good factor. And then the the lifestyle, because in addition to the parks, which everyone thinks about the waterfront parks that we have. Um, we've got, we got a lot of, uh, cultural, uh, opportunities to enjoy as well. Not only do we have some of the, uh, bars and restaurants that do stand up comedy, they do, uh, open mic, they do sketches, you know, improv stuff, uh, at Cave and Creek. Um, you've got PS1 MoMA. And uh, and there's like even like ice skating. There's a there's a a new uh, skating rink that's that's they do it in partnership with the with the Islanders where the kids can join and learn to play. And so like two hundred dollars, your kid gets all the gear and they get eight weeks of skating lessons and hockey lessons. And then there's City Ice Pavilion, which is a pretty large um, ice skating complex. And that's all right there. And then we have a nice YMCA. So which is a pool. There's a lot of really cool things that are that are right there. And it's easy to get to. It's very convenient.
0: And they also have a ferry service now that uh, lights in several points in, in Long Island City and Astoria. Yeah,
4: they have two lines now. So uh, And it connects to Astoria as well as Roosevelt Island where you can go downtown and it's, it's you know, for my money. If I were, uh, you know, I live and work in Long Island City now, but if I were working downtown in Wall Street, uh, you'd never see me on the subway. I'd be on the ferry all the time. Mm.
0: Do you have any favorite places to eat in Long Island City? I know there's been like a, a, a burgeoning of restaurants. Every, the last every of place years.
4: I go to is my favorite place, <laughs> um, but for different things, you know, for different things, and um, yeah, and I, I probably would get criticized by someone if I if I left somebody out. But to be honest, there's there's really you know depending on what you want, we have we have a lot, um, we have a lot of it, and I'll just say this because it's not really in direct competition with anyone else, but but uh, one of the things that we like to we like to pick up is there's a there's an Indian truck, uh, Indian food truck, on the corner of Fifth uh, and uh, and 49th. Mm. That's there in the evening, and they I think they have a restaurant in Midtown, and they bring the food in. And that's kind of a that's kind of a cool thing because we only have I think one other Indian place. So,
0: do you have any advice for someone who's thinking about opening up a business in Long Island City, specifically a restaurant or a bar or th- th- that kind of a uh, sure a retail business? Yeah,
4: yeah. I think I think the number one thing, whatever your business is going to be um you should really just study the market and really understand you know where you want to be and what you're offering, and and is what you're offering in demand? Is it is there going to be need for it? You know we have some fantastic restaurants already, um, a number of uh, that that focus on Italian cuisine. It's going to be hard if you wanted to open a, an Italian restaurant, it can be done. Mariella is doing a good job down on the waterfront, but you've got Mandicatis Rustica, Mandicatis, you've got Manetti's, you've got uh, Bellavia. So there's a number of of, of competi- you know, uh, competitors that are right there. Um, some great, uh, you know, pub, pub fair. You've got Woodbine's, Jackson's, um, Gantry Cafe. So, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm leaving people out, I'm sure. But you really should, should know where you want to be and, and understand your timeline, right? Because um, there are some parts of the neighborhood that just don't have the same level of foot traffic that other parts of the neighbor, neighborhood have. So if you have a business plan that you can be flexible and you know you're going to be able to attract people you know, that are maybe a little bit off the beaten path, if you can get that promotion out there and, and attract people and, and, you know, if it's something that it's it's unique and that provides a service that, that we don't currently have, then I think you'll be successful. But it's very important to really, really understand, as as with anything, just understand the market that you're coming into and, and understand what your, your your time horizons and expectations are.
0: And I'm sure that the rents also must be different depending on what the foot traffic, foot traffic is like and where uh, the subway is and uh, no, or is, is, is
4: yeah no no of course of course that means you know the commercial rents will, will vary on, on on the appeal and where the neighborhood is and i you know it's just funny i remember just uh, 12 years ago you know the sort of the the vernon boulevard kind of ended you know at a certain point and now it's probably you could walk down twice as far you know the stores just didn't exist and now it just continues and continues and uh you know that that was one of the things that we we kind of had expected when there was a there was a high profile business that was going to locate to Long Island City, and they decided that they weren't going to locate to Long Island City, but it would have kind of completed this uh, this kind of triangle that runs along 44th Drive, Jackson Avenue, and Vernon Boulevard, um, which connects really would have connected and completed the neighborhood in in a kind of a meaningful way.
0: Mm. Well. Uh we would be a little remiss in talking about Long Island City if we also didn't discuss the recent decision of Amazon not to uh, build it, uh, its second headquarters in, in Long Island City. You know, one thing that always struck me about about this whole, uh, the way this, this panned out in the aftermath is that um, on one hand, you can say there was an expectation, all this pent up demand and good things, and then they weren't there anymore. Has... has is the atmosphere different now than it was from before Amazon made the announcement that that they were going to establish a headquarters there?
4: It is, it is, and it's actually it's been a very positive. It's been a very positive uh, uh, response. You know, when the announcement was made in early November, uh, the the level of interest just skyrocketed in both. You know, people coming to open houses, people making offers, and the inventory uh, on the resale market were well, largely cleared. Uh, it was consumed. Um, when they made their second announcement uh, a couple of weeks ago, we weren't sure what that was going to mean. But but um, I'm happy to report that the market has been resilient and there seems to be a, an increased still, a sustained level of high interest in the neighborhood. I, I want to thank Amazon because what they did was put a bright spotlight on Long Island City and Western Queens generally – more people in the world got to know that our neighborhood than any time before. People look at a map and they can understand. Oh, this is why so many people have been. This is why so much building is being done. This is why Amazon wanted to come here. All of the all of the appeal points that that we think Amazon was attracted to, they still exist, and the development plans that are in place will be done. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of time. And I, but I think that really. Um, it was unfortunate that, that, that it didn't come to fruition because I think for a lot of reasons it would have been beneficial for the city and the state and the community uh, over time. But, um, but I think that from a, from a perspective of, of a real estate, you know, the real estate market, people got to know Long Island City more than they had ever known before. And I think that's a good thing because the story of Long Island City, uh, as we heard before, is it's a compelling place. It's a compelling place. It has a lot to offer. And that is, that is sort of baked into the DNA of the neighborhood, right? So um, so I think it's still a great place to buy. And I think that the, the level of interest we've been seeing in the past few weeks is, is sustained. And, you know, I, so, you know, I, I said to a, to a reporter that was asking me, and I said, look, Amazon, was, Amazon decided to come to Long Island City. There was no Amazon there. So they looked at Long Island City and said, hey, this is kind of a great place. It still is a great place. And of course, uh, housing is still in short supply there,
0: and the retail businesses still must be doing well, and people still must be out and in, and enjoying the place a lot.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- I think that you know the the difference between there's a difference between the sales market and the rental market in terms of inventory. Uh, the sales market has tight inventory, and the rental uh, market has uh, a good amount of inventory because most of the building that's been done has been rental. So, and that has actually helped. Keep, keep rents uh, really in check. They haven't, gone, they haven't gone soared to these new heights. And you see that, that, that's helpful.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, we've been speaking with Robert Whalen of Halstead's Long Island City office. I'd like to thank him and Bob Singleton of the Greater Histori- Historical Society. Uh, thanks for tuning in to this week's show. If you have comments or questions, if you'd like to get on the show's mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Can like us on Facebook. Um, our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. And thanks to our special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for "At Home with David Theurgartner" coming up next at eight PM live right here on TalkRadioNYC. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.
2: You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
4: Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at Talking Alternative.
2: Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place.
3: At Home, I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network. At
4: www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative.
3: Are you a conscious co creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness?